Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers, brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Hello, this is Matt. This week, my guest is Mary Ludy. Mary is someone whose writing I'm familiar with. She writes for the Still Speaking Daily Devotional. You can find those online. They're free if you just Google that phrase, Still Speaking Daily Devotional. She's a fascinating writer, really gifted at using a short amount of words to encapsulate some deep insights about God. So I was eager to talk to her about preaching. Mary's got a really interesting background, especially for a Protestant preacher. She was a Roman Catholic nun for years before she pivoted and became a United Church of Christ pastor. And in between those two things, she was a professor at Andover Newton Theological Seminary in Newton, Massachusetts. She uh, says in this interview that she learned how to preach while teaching in a seminary, while teaching in a seminary, not, not as a student in a seminary. Mary served as the senior minister of the First Church in Cambridge, and also recently just wrapped up her tenure as the uh, interim senior minister at the Wellesley Village Congregational Church in Wellesley, Massachusetts. I myself served a different church in Wellesley for years, and a part of the conversation we talk about what it's like to preach in and to affluence. We also touch on how Mary's Catholic upbringing affects her as a Protestant preacher, and uh, a particular point that she raises several times is the dangers of moralism in the pulpit from both the left and the right. Why a preacher ought never to be moralistic in the pulpit. So we touch upon that as well. We begin, as we've been beginning, with a snippet from a sermon that Mary preached, and this one came from a sermon she delivered last Advent. I listened to it and just loved it and thought it would be a good way to begin. The audio of this sermon is pretty bad. Churches out there, you ought to invest in better audio equipment so that when you show up on Preachers on Preaching, your minister will sound as good as possible. Mary's voice goes a little haywire in this. In fact, it speeds up for a few seconds, a little bit uh, chipmunk-like. So if you enjoy the chipmunk Christmas carol album. You might enjoy this chipmunk Christmas sermon. Then her voice slows right down. But it's a great sermon, and it touches upon, or it begins with um, the, the fact that when she was a little kid, her and her siblings would put their toys inside the family Christmas manger. So she references the fact at one point that Godzilla is not the strangest character in the manger, and that's because Earlier in the sermon, she talks about placing her Godzilla toy right next to the baby Jesus. So here she is, Mary Ludy. Mary also does a lot of pondering in this text. The text is clear that Mary pondered about all of these things in her heart. She meditates on everything that's happening, and she does it while it's happening. Giving birth in a livestock shed in the dead of winter. She's pondering. Smelly animals nosing around her newborn infant in the manger, and she's pondering. Angels playing trumpets overhead, shepherds with garlic breath crowding into the space. And she ponders. She ponders all these things in her heart. Mary ponders. You and I would be hysterical. And Joseph, he's silent, doesn't say a word. In fact, Joseph does not utter a word in the entire Bible. Wherever he shows up in the Bible, he never says anything. He may not have had much time to talk, 
After all, the angels were always interrupting his sleep, always telling him he had to load up the donkey at a moment's notice. He had to go to Bethlehem, he had to go to Egypt, he had to come back again, he had no GPS. It was not easy for Joseph. Maybe he was just too worn out to say anything at all. And those shepherds? You want weird? Shepherds are great in Christmas carols, and they're very, very attractive on Christmas cards, but you don't want them in your house. They tramp in all that manure, they tell a lot of off-color jokes, and they are known to have sticky fingers. You have to count the silver when they leave. You'll be missing a few salad forks and the soup ladle. No, Godzilla is not the oddest character in the crash. They're all a little strange. But it's probably a good thing for us that they are a little weird. If Gabriel had been just a sweet little cherub, who never made anybody quake in their boots, we might not know how good it is for us, once in a while, to be scared by God, to tremble in the divine presence every now and then. We sing about this, of course. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, 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 or we sing, let all mortal flesh keep silent and with fear and trembling stand, but we don't do a lot of trembling. When was the last time you actually shook in God's presence or hid your face before God's holiness or begged God to go away and leave you alone or stood mute before God's power in the world or in somebody's life that you know or in your own? When was the last time the world suddenly became a lot larger than you thought it was, deeper, and more mysterious than anybody ever thought it was. The last time, when was it, that all your assumptions and certainties went right out the window? They vanished the last time you dropped to your knees. And if Mary didn't do so much pondering, we might not realize just how much there is to ponder in the way our ordinary lives unfold every day. We might not realize how much mystery is calling out to us from life's smallest details. We might not know how available God is to us in those facts on the ground, the everyday stuff of being human in this world. If Mary didn't ponder so much, we might never hold up some seemingly insignificant experience from our life, hold it up like a prism to the light and turn and turn it and discover there, as we ponder, in that mess, or in that glory, or in that perplexity, or in that hope, the very presence and activity of God. And if Joseph were not so silent, so retiring, we might not learn how silly it is for us always to want to have something clever or wise to say about everything all the time. We might not discover how liberating it is to have no need to comment, no compulsion to be heard, no urge to steal a scene or have the last word. We might, if he had not been so silent, we might miss a chance to notice how seldom we hold back so that there's room for somebody else to move forward. We might not notice how much need we have to have someone make room for us. If Joseph had been some chatterbox, his son Jesus 
might not have developed that beautiful capacity of his just to let things be. Jesus might not have disappeared to those hilltops in the night to be still and to be with God and to listen, not to talk, and to catch the sounds of human suffering and hope that rise up from down below. Maybe it was Joseph's example of silence that kept Jesus from being provoked when, all bloody and accused, he stood before Pilate and the crowd at the end of his life. Maybe Joseph's letting go of the need to be somebody enabled his child Jesus to stand before the powers of the world and not utter a single word of self-defense. Mary Ludy, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. Thank you so much. Very glad to be talking to you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Let's jump right in Me with too, the... Me Matt. Thanks. Oh, good. Let's jump right in with a yeah. segment from the sermon that we just heard, hmm. which was an, ad, an Advent sermon. Is that right? Well, actually, yes. Um, fourth Sunday of Advent, and the Ark Congregation in Wellesley that Sunday is the tipping over into We Can't Wait to Sing Christmas Carols. Sunday. So we do a kind of Christmas tinge to that fourth Sunday of Advent. So you're celebrating Christmas and... A little a little prematurely, but yes. We yeah. do that here too, right in the middle of Advent, yeah. actually, yeah. before everybody leaves. Um, so yeah. in that sermon, you began by talking with this wonderful illustration, talking about you and your siblings sticking your little toys in the family crush <laughs> and, yeah. and about how odd and strange it is was to look into the crush and to see toy spiders and a god you mentioned godzilla in that bit and and other kids toys amongst the typical manger scene yeah. but then you go on to yeah. say godzilla is not the strangest thing going on in the manger and you talk about and we just heard you talk about how odd the characters in the story are. And then you connect their idiosyncrasies to ours. Um, mm-hmm. Is that, I, I found that to be wonderful and uh, a, a, on two different levels. One, to think about the influence that Joseph and Mary as parents and as people had on, the, on Jesus' own self-understanding and development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also, you're encouraging your listeners, I think, in your congregation to to not be ashamed or hold back their own idiosyncrasies, but to see yes, themselves yes. as and to see yes. Joseph and Mary as models. Is that yes. a, a, a typical move for you? Um, it, it it is insofar as anything is typical in what I do. It's something I like to do when. Uh, especially when the festivity is so big and so familiar to everyone and you kind of think you've heard it or said it all. I think one of the ways to get at something beautiful and mysterious about these big festivals is to just retell the story in homely terms um, and then actually take the story seriously as a human event and and try to see... um, I guess maybe theologically I might even say it's sort of like taking the incarnation seriously. These are, you know, even if it's a story, they're real people and I can imagine them as real human beings. And I, and I can make the connections between their experiences and our own, even if their experiences seem odd and distant from ours. And in fact, when you think about them as ordinary people, 
those experiences are not so different. And, um, and, and the way, as you said, you know, the way people grow up in families or among friends or in communities, the influences there, I think, I think we don't often think of, say, the holy family as a real family and as a real uh, human uh, set of relationships. And I, I do like to do that. And as I said, I like to do it especially when, um, you know, there's no new angle of vision on Christmas or the, or, or the resurrection or something like that. There's just the story, and the story yields um, lots of insight um, into what it means to be human. So rather than concentrating, which is a tempting move on Christmas, especially, I think, on the yeah. miracle, yeah. on right. trying to understand this from the perspective of the heavens opening and our jaws dropping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The point of entry yeah, is I, great. Yeah, it's it's much more on the ground. And I, I think um, it, it surprises people, I think, a little bit. That It's interesting you chose that sermon because it, it resonated enormously with the congregation, and it wasn't that kind of resonance you sometimes get, which is, oh, love that, love that. It was, in my family, we, or I never thought of, you know, Mary or of Joseph especially as being a real father. Um, but it was something that really uh, fired a few imaginations about how down-to-earth and real um, this great mystery can actually be for people. I wonder if a part of that is in your context that you were preaching in in Wellesley. There's a lot yeah. of grandeur in that context. Yes, yeah. A lot yep. of pressure. And yep. to concentrate in a moment where you could have gone even bigger, right? Even bigger than yep. the pressure mm-hmm. people are feeling. Yes. To go smaller. Yes. Yeah. It, it, that's a really good observation, Matt, because I think telling a story, a small story, or, or connecting things to small details of everyday life, one person responded to me by saying, um, uh, I, 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 at first I didn't like the idea that the characters were weird or strange. Um, and then when you got toward the end where you said your own life is a little bit weird, too, and that the weirdness is embraced at the manger, that, that there's a kind of weird with weird <laughs> at, at the birth of Christ, that we're, that, that our humanity is the same. He said, I, he said, I just, I lost it at that point because I realized that in my own life, I don't let myself be ordinary. Oh, that's beautiful. It was, yeah, it was very moving. I almost cried. And, um, and it's one of the few times when someone has given me feedback in which it, illumined for me what I was trying to do that I wasn't even fully aware of. So you understood it, it, it made, your mm, own work mm, I better. understood my own sermon better. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do you think at all, and I want to talk about what, from my perspective, is um, seems like an, an unusual route to, to wind up as a Protestant preacher. Um, <laughs> do you think your, you're, um, I don't know, what the preferred way to put it is your roots in Catholicism, your, the, the faith of your childhood allows you to, to have a more incarnational faith and maybe a more rooted, mm. grounded one than a, mm-hmm. a lot of Protestant preaching can delve very quickly into abstraction. But I'm really struck. And I was very moved too in listening to this sermon um, by, it made me think about, the impact I'm having on my children as a father. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Which 
That's interesting. I mean, preaching doesn't always cause one, I don't think, to to think about their own situation <laughs> in life as much as it probably could. Well, I, I, your question about whether Catholicism has some influence on this particular approach, I think, is right on. Um, I don't know. I never thought of it as Catholicism as such, but it certainly is um, being uh, steeped, I think, in a sense that the characters of Scripture really are family, that they really belong to you, that they, um, especially um, the, the, the Holy Family, this is something really ingrained in us, that that these are models for parenthood, these are fam. this is a real family, um, that you can uh, have a, a subjective kind of relationship with each of the members of this family, that you look to it as a pattern. Now, of course, it has its, it has its downsides. I mean, it's a perfect little nuclear family. But, um, but yes, I mean, we were indeed um, helped to have a real sort of normal human relationship with these characters and converse with them and, and think about their lives. I mean, Catholicism gave us, and at least the Western Catholic tradition gave us, um, a, a much bigger family to think about, too. I mean, it wasn't just Jesus and Joseph and Mary. It was Anna and, you know, as a grandmother. And, I mean, Mary had parents and Joseph had parents. I mean, there's all kinds of inventive creativity around these things. And I think it's that, more than anything else, the use of the imagination to create a real human bond between us and the stories of Scripture that I got from my upbringing. It's beautiful to be sewn into the narrative like that. I think there can be a tendency yeah. sometimes. I was told once by a teacher, whenever you read the Bible, the the, the strategy that you ought to bring to it is not your typical reading strategy where you identify mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the hero. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So don't be the Bilbo Baggins in the story. You know, you you, you be the idiot and the sinner and the fool in the story. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is such a yeah. Protestant assumption and can yeah. can really work in some instances. In preaching, I think it can mm-hmm. work when we're mm-hmm. in, in some of Jesus' parables, etc. But it also can leave the adventure of reading scripture on the table. Leave you at a, at a mm-hmm. it can make it cold. Mm-hmm. So your your route into the pulpit, can you trace that for us? Um, yeah, kind of kind of accidental. Um, I, as you know, grew up Roman Catholic, and I was um, through. I did lots of things, and we don't need to go into all of those lots of things. But I ended up in graduate school at Boston College, a Jesuit university in Boston, and I was doing a PhD in historical theology, as they call it. And I, I ran into, um, at, a, at a graduate school event, uh, the newly appointed dean of Andover Newton Theological School, which was just down the road. I didn't know too many people there. I knew a couple of people there, but not a lot. And I just ran into this fellow, and uh, we discovered we had a common love for St. Teresa of Avila. He was a, a Puerto Rican Protestant theologian, and he just loved Teresa of Avila for some reason. And we got into this great conversation, and at the very end of it, he said, you want a job? <laughs> I went up to the seminary while I was completing my doctoral work and began teaching. The minute you land in a seminary context, you find yourself being asked to do things um, in local parishes and sometimes representing the seminary, sometimes not. Um, and also the daily or weekly chapel services. Um, you're, you're a faculty member, so you're expected to preach. I had never preached before. I had no idea what I was doing. I tried to emulate what I saw um, then as I got more and more um, deeply involved in the life of Andrew Newton, I preached more and more. And then 
when I left there the first time, um, I went to do some consulting work with a local church, and as luck would have it, or as bad luck would have it, the the pastor and his wife, for that matter, became ill during that period that I was there, and I ended up doing some of the worship services and the preaching, so that continued. And then I was called to be a pastor, and I had not anticipated that. I didn't really actively seek it, um, but when the call came, it felt right, and I accepted it, and then all of a sudden I was faced with weekly preaching. And that's how I ended up doing preaching. I kind of backdoored my way into it. So even though you are not a seminary graduate, you still learned how to preach in seminary. Well, I learned how to... (laughs) I know I learned how to preach by watching other people who apparently had had so many educations and had learned how to preach. But I have to say, it was um, fits and starts. I I really struggled with it. I had no idea what the point was, what I was supposed to be attempting, how to shape things. I found myself often lecturing rather than preaching, as I understand it now. And um, it took me, I think, almost a year, if not two, once I was full-time in the local parish, to drop a lot of the bad habits that I had brought with me from those occasional preaching experiences and begin really shaping um, sermons that grew out of and, and, and aimed back at the context that I was in. And that, that, was a, that was a really hard learning for me. So it took being in dialogue with a particular community? Yes. Yeah. 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 No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, and even at first, um, I thought that's what I was doing. Um, but really, I was more in dialogue with I, what, what I projected their expectations of me were, what I thought they wanted me to do. And, and that's what I responded to, rather than the actual lived life that we were sharing um, and the, the, the aspirations of the community and its struggles. And uh, when I finally turned that switch on, um, it didn't get necessarily easier, but it got clearer and I relaxed, and that made a huge difference. I was, I was killing myself those first couple of years. Was the anxiety that you were feeling before you were able to relax tied to the, the seeming audacity of the task, or was it? <laughs> I wish I were that humbled by it, Matt, and it could say yes. It was, it was actually not the audacity of the task, um, in any kind of pious way. You know, it's of God using you or speaking through you or you have the duty to proclaim the Word of God. It was basically that they all loved the previous guy a lot, and they loved his sermons, and I, in sheer human respect, wanted to do as well as he did, if not better, and um, and so tried to emulate some of the things I thought they loved about him and his messages, and just ended up being really phony, but also um, exhausting. I, I, I just, I had to get you know, the, the classic expression, I had to get out of my own way. I had to, to really um, examine my ego and, and and not, I don't know, just not try to be somebody I wasn't. And I, that's really what I was doing those first 18 months at least. Do you find when you shifted from being a nun to becoming a Protestant preacher, did your... <laughs> which is a great that transition. So crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, uh, the the courage that I see in people, and I wonder about it for you, who have made that transition and said, for whatever reason, 
this is not the place for me, mm-hmm. but this is the faith for me, and yeah. I'm going to hold fast to that, or it's going to hold fast to me. Right. Um, as you made that transition for yourself, how did your understanding of preaching change? Mm. Well, you know, just on a, a very practical level, um, uh, it preaching uh, suddenly seemed to me to be more connected to the shaping of consciences and communities than it had been um, when I was growing up in the Catholic Church. Most of the preaching that I heard, now I, I, these generalizations are always iffy and they're dangerous to make, but most of the preaching that I heard was moralistic. It was all about, um, you know, what, what we are, how we ought to behave. And you know, that only goes so far to really enliven people's consciences and souls. It begins to be enervating after a while. And for me, it was constantly enervating to hear um, moralism. Uh, and every every story, every piece of scripture was turned into um, the engine of a kind of moralistic instruction about behaviors. And um, when I came across the, across the divide... Um, First of all, I was exposed to far more variety in preaching than I had been before. Um, Catholics pretty much stick to their own parish, and that's what they hear. Um, I was I was privileged to be able to hear a great variety of preaching, um, and I began to realize that there were um, ways of, of unfolding the Scripture that although they could prick the conscience, as the Puritans used to say, um, they didn't always have to be in the should, would, you know, category and I began to discover that there were pastoral ways to preach, that there were inspirational ways to preach, that there were prophetic ways to preach. And, um, and you know, on a purely practical level, I mean, it's just long. We have more time, um, which is an upside and a downside, because that usually meant we also didn't have sacrament. But um, there was more time to unfold um, insights. And um, now I have to say, having said that, that lately, as I survey the preaching scene, um, moralism seems to have taken hold of us in ways also that I find enervating. In fact, I, I write these little rants from time to time about um, preachers who only know how to make a should out of a gospel story, and um, I can't bear it any longer. I really can't. I think it's really hurt the church. What um, is it about moralizing from the pulpit that, that makes you rear back? Well, it, because, first of all, it conditions the reading of the text in a way that I think is it, it's poverty of, of, of reading, a poverty of reading. But secondly, it, it, it places all the responsibility, um, it, it places a kind of responsibility on the hearer that I think is infantilizing. You know, um, it, my own sense of it is that, that, that the preacher um, ought to open a text in such a way that um, the hearer is... is is left to make big decisions and to chew on things or to be inspired or to be cared for in ways that um, that he or she um, needs to, wants to. But if you're told that the interpretation of the text is this big moral imperative um, and you can't, for whatever reason, see yourself in it or you can't live up to it, or you, I think it's just undermining. So when you, when you hear moralizing preaching in the left-leaning mainline, Church. That's pretty much all I hear these days. 
Is it tend to be more along political lines, or how how is that different? I assume yeah, it's different it's, from the moralizing you heard as a child. Yes, because the moralizing I heard as a child was about specific personal behaviors, and a lot of it was lodged in um, areas like honesty, integrity, purity, you know, sexual behaviors, that sort of thing. Um, in in the United Church of Christ and in other liberal um, congr- uh, traditions, I I do hear a lot of it's this, it's social justice, and God knows I'm not against that. I mean, I mean, I'm <laughs> God knows I'm not against it, but I find that it um, that the should that come out of that kind of preaching um, really do seem to imply that the central task of a life of faith is to hold certain positions and do certain actions around certain causes or issues. And, um, and you're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah. So that so it's all of it implies a kind of judgment on you, which is, I find, demoralizing. And, I, you know, a little bit of moralizing preaching every now and then I just, is great, but people think they're being prophetic when they're moralizing. And I think that there's a difference. Yeah. And I think, you know, authentic prophetic preaching for me is, is something that raises me up and gives me a vision and a horizon and a hope and stirs a sense of urgency in me. It's an active result. And I find moralizing to be a deflating, um, uh, sh- I shrink back, I do, I shrink back from it. Um, and I feel disconnected to others as a result. I look around and think, well, they must, you know, maybe they do it. I don't, I, I don't know. I did, how do you do this? It, it feels as if it leaves me no place to stand if for some reason I'm not up to par. And and so I I hate that stuff, and I try my best to avoid it. I also think that the repertoire of a preacher ought to include more than that. And um, uh, I haven't heard enough sermons of sheer inspiration, sermons that move me to love God, um, uh, and, and that, that just inspire me with this, this glory and this beauty that is the God who calls us to these things. I remember sitting in, a, in, in the pews of, a, of my former congregation, not First Church in Cambridge, but my home church, and there was a great preacher there um, who, for almost 10 years, preached nothing but social justice and cause issue-type sermons, pretty much nothing but. And he was good. He was very good. Um, but I was tired of it, and I found out that the person behind me was tired of it when, after another one of these sermons, this guy who was like 80 years old and a pillar of the church leaned over and said, you know, Mary, I pretty much know by now what God wants me to do. I'd really like to know who's the God who wants me to do it. Oh, wow. The And it's so easy. I mean, we we are averse to the glory of God, and so because it's threatening and dangerous mm-hmm. and beautiful. Yeah. And therefore it's so easy to focus right on our yeah. own. I mean, that's what we do. We don't think about individual moral behavior so much, but, but we obsess over um, right political belief. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it is. I sometimes think that the impulse to moralize politically from the pulpit around social justice issues would be better channeled in lament as opposed mm-hmm. to, yes. yeah. to to challenge or to mm-hmm. self-aggrandizement. Mm-hmm. But if we just stopped and, and recognized and f- let ourselves in a worshipful context feel yeah. 
our guilt and the mortification of our sin. You can't do that all that often either, but it feels more authentic than um, hammering on how we ought to change. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I actually preached a sermon not too long ago um, about we were doing a Lenten series on forgiveness, and and um, at one point someone asked me outside worship, you know, what about the things we can't forgive, the big, big things, you know, the murders and the beheadings and the, all that sort of thing. And my answer was, in, in the following week's sermon, was pretty much what you just said, that um, for those things, um, there are several th- ways we can approach it, but at least one of them is we can feel we may not be able to forgive, but we have to be able to feel. We have to be able to, uh, you know, I gave an example of when I was in Mexico City as a young you know, teenager doing some mission work there, um, how I would stand in the shower and just cry and cry and cry from all the things I had seen. And um, and it changed nothing. Um, it didn't do any good, but I felt like, if I could feel, at least I was still connected as a human being, if I could feel it. and feel my own sin, my own complicity, my own ignorance. I didn't know that such suffering and poverty existed. Um, my own helplessness um, and my desire to go home to New England where it was a lot easier to believe in God. So, you know, I, I agree with you that lamentation is one way. I, I also think the offering of healing for people um, going along with that, not as cheap grace, not as saying, okay, now we lament and now here's the oil of, you know, of, of, of consolation, but a healing um, sermon and healing rituals that help people expose their woundedness and their helplessness, not as, you know, also as individuals, but also as communities, um, can really help people crack open a little bit. So ritual comes in there for me as well. So you just wrapped up an interim in a congregation in Wellesley, mm-hmm. Massachusetts. And, and as you mm-hmm. know, I served a different church in Wellesley for years. Yes. Mm-hmm. How did it feel, or did it feel different, to be preaching to such affluence over against mm-hmm. other places that you'd preached before? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> excuse me, um, yeah, I've asked myself this question a million times, and everyone asks me about it because people are curious about very affluent communities and congregations. Um, I, I mean, I, I can't say that I wasn't aware um, all the time of the the, the wealth and class uh, distinctions in that community, um, and of the ways in which sometimes, sometimes um, the way they move in the world, their assumptions about things. Um, uh, even the way they relate um, to the church and to the into the gospel is is influenced by the fact that they have they have means and privilege. Um, so there's there's no doubt about that. But I um, what I found was now this may be particular to this community, but what I found was a community that was itself aware that it wasn't often aware. That is to say, that they understood that um, their location, their social and economic locations, in some ways were um, both a, um, a possibility, a power that they had that they could use for good, but also um, it, it was a struggle that they had to engage in every day um, to see things more clearly with, with less, black, fewer blinders on. And 
I found a general awareness uh, that oftentimes they would be the ones who brought it up, um, who would say things like, well, I know, I know that I have wherewithal, and I know that puts me in a place that makes it both easier and harder for me to live my human life and my Christian life. I know that. Um, when you would ask them, well, what, what does that mean you know, in practice, um, they would say that they would struggle around issues of, um, of generosity and of um, uh, care for others and all of that, you know, care for the earth. But they struggle with those things because they even, you know, oh, the, the role the family played. I mean, many of these folks have a very, very high view of family and place a huge premium on family life and family time. Um, and that can sometimes make them wonder uh, about what comes first in their lives, where their real loyalties lie. So it's not as if, you know, I would walk into this sanctuary on Sunday morning um, facing a bunch of people who haven't asked themselves a lot of these same questions and who aren't struggling mightily um, to try to grapple with what it means to live a Christian life as an affluent and privileged person in a very affluent and very privileged community. So the, I think the assumption behind the question is, one, in preaching to affluence, one is either going to be evasive or mm-hmm. be challenging. And so how much challenge can you get away with? How much evasiveness yeah. no, well, I, I can think you it's a swallow? Dichotomy. Yeah, what I hear you yeah, saying yeah. is the congregation the congregation is already challenging itself and is, is self-critical, right? Well, you know, I think maybe not every affluent community is, but I found this one to be at least um, self-critical enough so that when I would say something in a sermon about our privilege or about um, the, the handicaps, if you will, of wealth, um, I wouldn't get um, outbursts or, you know, angry emails. I, I would get... I would get nods of acknowledgement. Um, and, and I do think it's, I don't think it's either evasive or challenging. I think it's um, helping people see more clearly what they already have a glimmer of, what they know. They know this. But if you can help them see more clearly that their wealth is, um, and their, their education, their power, their affluence is actually um, potentially something um, pretty good, I mean, could be used for the good, um, but at the same time that it, it, it holds them back from, sometimes from the very deepest challenges of Christian life. Well, there's a hard um, reckoning I found mm-hmm. that people are forced, and I was forced to face it myself in that context, where mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you have achieved very, very close communion with the idol of our culture and our country yeah, when yeah, you achieve that yeah. kind of success, you're right up next right, to it. Right. And you realize right. then the, the terrible limitations mm-hmm. of that idol. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it is a captivity that, that is easy to, to fall into. And I think that to some degree we're all in it. Um, I think they're in it uh, to a greater degree because we just have greater means and greater privilege, but we're all in it. And I think one of the ways that I've learned to talk about this with people is to acknowledge that we're all in it, um, that nobody escapes this. I, I preached a, a stewardship sermon in which I laid out for them the, the, the envy that pastors have for one another about big churches and big salaries and pension funds and 
all the rest. I mean, I just lay it out as a captivity that we're all engaged in trying to figure out how to be faithful in the midst of all of this, and that sooner or later, the word you use is a good one, reckonings have to occur, and and people will grapple with how deep they want to go. And I'm going to lay out for them as a preacher how deep the gospel says we can go, mm. that we're invited to go, and then let them grapple with how how far they feel they're, they're able. And I can't tell them they should. I can only tell them what the possibilities are and what kind of life results and how I'm struggling with it too. And then ultimately whether they take that leap. That's got to be theirs. That's theirs, and that's not something that you can or should try to. I can't tell them. I can't tell them. I can only invite them. You know, come follow me, the rich young man. You know, I can only invite, and I can't go traipsing after them if they say no to say that somehow they've done it wrong. And and I think what also enters here for me is the more you, more I anyway, got to know these folks, the more I realized that they suffer. And um, just because they have money and influence doesn't mean that they can get out of their pain any faster than anyone else can. And um, sometimes I have to speak to that, that they're being in this community, they're sharing in this challenge of trying to live the gospel in this affluent world that they move in, um, is um, part of that part of that pain. Absolutely. And one of the things I found was that, not not universally, but for some folks, that which drove them to achieve that kind of success was painful mm-hmm. out of the gate. It was painful out of the gate, and it never stops bothering them. And um, and to, to ask, you know, again, just the, the asking of questions and the invitation, you know, laying out what's possible in gospel living, um, I, 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 that's about as far as I was able to go. I certainly can't demonstrate with them or scold them um, for their positions in life. Um, I think that anybody who's attained that much affluence and that much privilege and power, um, as you said, um, is entangled deeply, and nothing in this life is not entangled with those idols. But wealth, power, and privilege, more so than almost anything else, I, I have a huge... I, I know this sounds really weird, you know, when there's so many people suffering impoverishment and enslavement and all stuff. I have a huge compassion for this um, position that they're in. It is it is very hard. Did you teach preaching at Andover Newton? For one semi-disastrous year, yes. <laughs> I was a terrible teacher of preaching. Terrible. I was terrible. Think, how, did you see students who just stepped into the task like that immediately and were able to, to do it? Or did you, did you see students grow into it in the manner you were describing your own growth into the pulpit before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, what did that both. look like? Both. I, I saw both. I mean, I saw some people with what I would call natural gifts for preaching. That is, they had a sense of, um, of getting to the point and of, um, and of unfolding that point in, in arresting ways and they, they had a sense of structure, which I think is the one thing that a lot of students struggle with, um, is, is how to structure things. Um, it, most of them were very good writers to begin with, and their biggest challenge was to learn how to write for speaking, or just to learn to speak. Um, uh, but they had all kinds of gifts that made them naturals, if you will. Um, 
they uh, then there were others who had um, maybe fewer gifts, or they had equal gifts, but they just found the task a little bit more bewildering. And they also, um, um, many of them grew um, in various areas of the of the task over over the course of the year. Um, uh, for example, I mean, there's a student who really one of these typical first year preachers who wanted to say everything they knew about the text in one sermon and. You know, just a couple of wise words about how, you know, if you're actually preaching in a local church context, the text comes around again, or you can preach on it more than once, and you don't have to say everything all at once. I mean, it sounds like such obvious advice, but it, it made the student realize what the task was, which was not, you know, to exhaust the possibilities, but to speak to um, a particular day and time and people about something important about that scriptural text. Um but students, I did see them grow, but there were always a few students, and it was a great mystery to me, who clearly had a passion for local church ministry, but who were just never really going to be good preachers in the in, in the sense that we think of a good preacher, somebody who has a message and a, a good way of presenting it, and who can speak well, and all of that sort of thing. Um, but my guess is that their congregations have figured out that preaching isn't everything, um, because they're really good pastors, and although they preach pretty good sermons are not great, and they're rarely great, but, but they do everything else, and and in the end, um, it's, the, it's the aggregate of things that make people effective in their ministry, and, um, and I wish there was a way sometimes to get people to stop putting so much emphasis on, on weekly preaching as like the measure of whether their pastor is a good pastor. What do you think contributes to that? Oh, the centrality of the preaching moment in our yeah, and the, the, what I'm hearing you name is an overemphasis on it mm-hmm. in terms of the the different functions that a clergy person is supposed to perform, the different things that are happening in church. Mm-hmm. Why are we so narrowly focused on on that one aspect? Well, I think it's because it's it's for many many people, not all by any means, but for many people. It's the one moment in worship where they understand something and they know what they're doing. And, you know, a lot of us have been, a lot of Protestant folks I've talked to have been brought up to think that worship is good if you kind of go home with one great new idea. And that comes not from necessarily prayers and singing. It comes from the sermon. And and I, I think that it may actually be less a reflection on preaching itself as on the way we worship and what we count as worship in our tradition I, I went to a series, actually. Uh, I taught worship in Andrew Newton for years, and um, at the beginning of each semester, I'd ask my students to ask their pastors how many hours per week they spent preparing worship. And the answers came back with these huge numbers, you know, 20, 25 hours a week. And you immediately know what, what's going on there. They're not spending 25 hours, you know, on the bulletin or on prayers of the people or whatever. They're spending 20, 25 hours on a sermon. And it puts an immense amount of pressure on the preacher, too. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it worship bombs if the sermon bombs. I mean, this is this is kind of crazy. And I think it's also because we're not yet back at the ancient practice of word and sacrament um, on a regular basis. And I, I think preaching improves, actually, when you have um, that, that balance. Do you think that Protestantism is too is limited because it's so text-based that we... Well, it's our glory. I mean, I can't say I hate it. I don't. I, I, I think it's a glory to be so 
um, intent on the text. The problem is that it's mostly um, not observed that much anymore. I, I, again, in a survey that I did, I found that most congregations are not reading a lot of scripture on Sunday morning. And so it's, um, it's not the glory that it used to be where you would hear a full complement of scripture. Most Catholic services hear more scripture than we hear in, you know, in a month. Yeah. Right here on one Sunday, but but I, so I, I I bemoan the lack of scriptural focus. But although scripture creeps in worship in many many other ways, so it shouldn't be too harsh here. But um, I, I do I I mean I think that in some ways our glory has gone to our head literally. It, it's it's helped us live the faith more as an intellectual exercise. I mean I'm obviously not the only one who observes this. This is something everybody has observed, and I and I think that it limits. The imagination a little bit, and it doesn't allow um, for other expressions of um, of knowledge and learning and experience, in, you know, through ritual and silence and, and other things like that. So I hate to lose the um, clarity that we have around the, the proclaimed and preached word. I think um, that that is the inheritance from the reform that I would hate to lose. But I think we need to regain a sense of proportion around it, um, that revelation and sacrament um, are present among us in other ways as well. And it needs, preaching needs to find its, its level, you know, against all that other stuff. So that it's one voice in yeah, the chorus. Yeah, one turn than... of the prism, yeah. I remember the first, the first church I served, the um and i'm not very i'm not i don't think i'm liturgically creative at all and it very much felt like the the quality of a sunday morning worship service rode entirely on what i had mm-hmm, to offer mm-hmm. from the pulpit mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. music at this church at this point was terrible the 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 mm-hmm. the, the musician <laughs> We were trying to make things more joyful, and the musician would yeah. do nothing but play Eric Satie for the offertory. And and we we wound up with a different musician who brought these just remarkable gifts in as a as a mm-hmm. liturgist and as a as a player and just a just deeply soulful, mm. joyful person. Yeah. And I remember yeah. feeling so free, and I think yeah. oddly my preaching got better when it. Yeah. wasn't the focal point any longer. It could be what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because then it can be also in conversation with all other elements of worship. And it doesn't have to be a standalone piece. Yeah. Um, even when we have this, these heavily thematic services where somebody says, what are you preaching on? What's the text? And all of a sudden, you know, you say, well, I'm preaching on, I don't know, baptism. And so everything is about water. You know, and by the time you get to the end of the service, you don't want to hear another word about water. Um, this allows you to to just be in better conversation with other and to and to let the genres of worship, the different genres, really shine. Um, so that not everything is subsumed into the moment of proclamation and preaching. Um, I just I also think that because we're so focused on the preaching moment, um, we um, we're under preachers are under a lot of pressure to bring something new and creative every time they get up into the pulpit. And so, especially if you're a lectionary preacher, it's, you know, here comes this text again. What did I do the last three times that came around? I can't do that again. Um, and so you're always looking for a new angle or something inventive, or you take a contrarian position. You know, no, Thomas didn't doubt Thomas, blah, blah. You know, so it's, it's this pressure to be 
creative, which I, mean, I hate creative. <laughs> and to be clever. And, I, and to be clever and to, to say something new. And, and I've found that, um, that when you are more cognizant of the preaching moment as one important, but one moment in many during the service and, and, and one uh, way uh, in which God is speaking uh, to people through, like you mentioned music, but also silence and prayer and the rhythms of, of what we do in worship, that pressure to be, you know, precious and creative every single Sunday really does fall away a little bit. And you find yourself content, at least I do, um, sometimes with just the plain sense of the text, you know, just tell the story, um, tell it in ways that connect with people's daily lives and with the projects and, and aspirations of the community and the, you know, the context that you're in. But just, just relax again um, into a, a, a confidence that the text itself um, in worship, in the context of community life, has power. It, it, it has its own power, and your job is to unleash it a little bit or get out of its way. And that constant anxiety about saying something new and really get in the way of that. Did you say grace works through what we do even when we don't know what we're doing? Was that the phrase you just used? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I think then if you think about the fact that grace operates locally, that mm-hmm. the contextual piece at some level is going to be attended to by the presence of Christ, right? Who's there in that local yeah, community. And, yeah, and that, and that, yes, exactly. If we really believe what we say about the gathered body being um, gathered in the presence of Christ and that it's manifested in a special way when the community gathers, I think it's true to say that whatever happens in that assembly, if, if people, um, including the preacher, are being open to and transparent to that face in that presence, then um, something... Uh, something, some gift will be given, and it may or may not be tied to um, what we're saying and doing intentionally. Uh, it, it can happen any way it wants. Now, that's not to deny that I think the, the, you know, the main way that God works is through our intentionalities and our efforts and our, our art. But I think that um, we shouldn't underestimate what happens just in the gathering, just by the assembly, just by assembling um, something mysterious is going on there. Mary, thank you so much for this great conversation. Um, yeah. I appreciate it. You know, I've had, I've had a good time. You've made me think about things I never think about. And I, I now I, um, I want to do it again so I can be more articulate. But <laughs> <laughs> and I want to ask all the questions I, love... I didn't get a chance to ask. Oh, well, I know I've got about five things I wanted to say. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hooper and Steve Thornton.